welcome back to Ye Olde Guide, and in this episode, we're taking a trip to the seaside for sand, slot machines, crazy golf and chips, to one of England's classic seaside resorts. No, it's not Blackpool, Broadstairs or Bognor Regis, but rather a town which boasts a less well-known historic maritime facade, a town which was once a centre of global fisheries, a strategic naval centre and one of England's wealthiest towns in the Middle Ages. We're visiting Great Yarmouth. And travelling along the wherry lines with me is historian, migration expert, football fanatic and all-round Great Yarmouthile, Daniel Gooch. So, Daniel, how would you rate a day out in Yarmouth? I'd rate it very highly. I've had a lot of days out in Great Yarmouth, as I know you have as well. We, we, we both grew up very close to there, and it was kind of the premier seaside resort if you're in East Anglian and uh yep I we went back there to research this and probably the most fun day out I think I've had researching for this podcast and as we'll see in this episode people from around the country went to Great Yarmouth for their holidays throughout the 20th century so we'll be talking more uh about that for new listeners to Ye Olde Guide or York as it's known to its friends welcome and here is how the show works we explore a town in England and we look at its historical significance in four broad categories. Culture, politics and war, science and industry, and urban heritage. We talk about the places and sites you can discover in the town, and then we'll give our own totally objective and scientific score for historical significance. And at the end, we have a bonus category called reality versus expectations. This will all make much more sense as we go through the podcast. And more information... Uh, about the podcast um, and about other places we've visited can be found on our website, yeoldyguide.com. You can also go there to feedback on this and all our other episodes. But for now, before we get into the categories, let's start, Daniel, with an overall view of Great Yarmouth. Great Yarmouth, it's the third largest town in Norfolk, which is a county in, as we mentioned, East Anglia, um, over on the east of England. It's got a population the of... The of England. That's the bum it. that sticks out of England. Yeah. yeah, if you're looking at a map, that's the best way to think of it, I think, to identify East Anger. Um, mm. Its population's around 40,000. It's most famous in modern times as holiday and a seaside resort. But historically, was a major national centre of the fishing industry. It reached its relative peak in wealth and influence, probably in the Middle Ages, when actually tax records from the 1330s have it as the fourth most prosperous town or city outside London, the whole country, i.e. the town wow. which was fourth in how much tax it contributed to the national coffers. Even as late as the 18th century, Daniel Defoe, whose famous novel Robinson Crusoe starts with the storm off the coast of Yarmouth, was able to describe it as an ancient town, much older than Norwich, and for wealth, trade and advantage of its situation, infinitely superior to Norwich. He also called it infinitely a beautiful superior. town. Infinitely superior. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And Norwich is That's the town we like tend- to hear. <laughs> yep. Um, the herring industry, it declined to practically nothing by the late 20th century, but it now has a burgeoning industry and in offshore wind energy production and still remains one of the top seaside resorts in the country. Like many seaside resorts, it's had its fair share of decline. People started flying off to the Canary Islands and so on. It does feel like it's retained a lot of its character, a lot of its charm, and it's still a great place to visit. It's right on the east coast of England. I think it would, it's the second most easterly town, I think, after Lowestoft, uh, right there facing the North Sea. And the town itself is situated on quite a narrow spit, one side facing the North Sea and one side facing the, the River Yare. But that's not always been the case. Is that right? Yeah, um, 
I, I think the town of Great Yarmouth as it is now um, didn't really exist, didn't physically exist as a kind of mainland lo- location until around about 900 AD. Because until that point, the sand spit on which it rests was all completely underneath the sea. And it's quite interesting, if you look at Great Yarmouth today, there is a Roman fort just off to the west of the town. It kind of sits on the very, very western edge of what could be described as Great Yarmouth suburbs. But even though it's so far inland, it was actually built, when it was built by the Romans, it was actually on the coast. So you can just see from that just how far the town has expanded outwards into the sea over the years. Yarmouth itself is part of a broader urban area, which includes Goulston-on-Sea, which is just on the opposite side of of the air. Um, And we'll mostly be focusing on on Yarmouth, but it is part of this larger uh, uh, urban area on the east coast of Norfolk. So thanks, Dan, for that overview. And I think now we'll get into our categories. In our first category, culture, we explore the influences of the town in the worlds of art, film, literature, entertainment. And this really gets to the heart of Great Yarmouth today and throughout its modern history as a resort centre. How and when did Yarmouth emerge as a resort? I think Yarmouth's main kind of peak as a seaside resort is pretty closely associated with the rise of leisure and tourism for the working classes. The entertainment industry started there really at the end of the 18th century, particularly when the sea baths were built in 1759. So it kind of initially started to take a similar trajectory to some of the more kind of early middle class or aristocratic uh, leisure resorts, such as we we saw in the bath episode. But when mass tourism arrived, when the railways came and they allowed people to travel around when people had more poor people have more disposable income this is really when great yarmouth came into its own particularly when the first railway station was built in 1844 because directly after this it only took 14 years from this date when the two brand new piers were built and there was a lot of growth in permanent leisure facilities from that point on so i think you can say the big social catalysts were greater spending power for working classes and the arrival of easier travel facilities across the country and people travelled for their holidays from, from all over the land. And I, I, I've read stories of thousands of, of tourists coming from the Midlands, places like Burton, you know, travelling huge distances to come to Yarmouth for factory weeks. This was, as you say, enabled by the railways, as it was for all resort towns. So what did that resort town boom leave as a legacy in terms of buildings and attractions in Yarmouth? What you have is quite a lot of really important seaside cultural icons. Um, I think we can just look at some of the most important ones now. You have the promenade there, of course. Um, you also have the Winter Garden, which is a huge kind of iron and glass Victorian building. It was actually originally built in Torquay in the late 1870s and then moved to Great Yarmouth in 1904. It's, it's a really kind of vast, grand building. I think I most recently went there years ago and it was a nightclub run by Jim Davidson. But it's also yeah, been it used was. for concerts, you know, indoor children's play area. Um, and it was added to, unfortunately, the Victorian Society's top 10 endangered buildings list in 2018. So its future is not uh, certain, but it's a, a fantastic legacy of, of, of that period of um, Great Yarmouth's history. But of course, we also have to talk about the fun fairs because that's what we all really go to, to Great Yarmouth for. 
Yeah. Now, my favourite ride in Great Yarmouth is the Scenic Railway, which I think is probably yours as well, Liam. I think it might be my favourite yep. ride in the world. It, it's absolutely fantastic. The Scenic Railway is Grade 2 listed. It's the only operational scenic railway type roller coaster in the uk and the way to think of this is that it's a vast huge wooden track with cars that go along it actually controlled by a brake man which is very very rare someone has to ride on it and actually operate there's, a brake. there's very few left in the world with a brakeman no, absolutely maybe eight roller coasters left in the world with a brakeman Yep, and this to is add to the terror. And this is the only operational scenic railway that's in the UK. It was actually originally built uh, for the Paris Colonial Exhibition in 1929, but the owner of Pleasure Beach, Pat Collins, bought it and had it shipped over to England, where it opened in 1932. And it's it it's the third oldest roller coaster of any type in England today. And um, if you want to see it in a, another sphere, then you have a what, look at uh, the House of Fun video by Madness. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but right at the end. They're riding on the roller coaster, going around it. Um, you can actually see the original mountain kind of alpine scenery that it was painted in at the time. It looks a little bit different from today, but this yeah, is really it's been one repainted. Of... Yep, it has in kind of this, I think, blue starry theme. It has been like that since I think the the eighties. But this is really just one example of um, this amazing collection of Victorian, Edwardian, pre-war entertainment heritage. I think we should talk about the Venetian waterways as well. Yes, we should. Recently restored and recently reopened Venetian waterways. Tell us about that. Absolutely. This is a kind of public gardens and small man-made collection of small collection of man-made canals which go around it, which were built in the 1920s as part of a, a work creation scheme. You can go around on a boat. And as you said, they've recently been restored with a lottery grant. The, the waterways um, were desilted and the gardens and cafe have been restored. Um, other things to look at, the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome built in 1903 by George Gilbert. It's one of only two purpose-built circuses in England still in operation. And I think the only one in the world which has a floor which sinks in the, into the pool to allow water shows. Or possibly the only one in the country, wow. actually. There might be only three in the world, but it's still very, very rare. Um, most circuses you'd think of as being temporary big top tents that can be moved. But no, this is there as a, as a permanent building that you can visit. Well, that's incredible. And are there any other... I mean, I, my recollection of the the promenade in Great Yarmouth. It goes on for quite a long way. I think they call it the Golden Mile. So you've got this beautiful sandy beach, which is what, what's led to all this. And then you've just got this, you've just got a succession of attractions. You've got the, the Pleasure Beach with, with all its history, but it also, to be fair, has lots of modern rides as well. Uh, and then you, you, you've got your you, a little model village, smaller fun fairs. You've got miniature golf. You've got a sea life centre. Got all you've got the winter gardens and two piers. When were the piers built? And is there anything significant about them, would you say? Um well the Wellington Pier was built in 1853. I think it was partially demolished about 15 years ago. And the Britannia Pier opened in 1858. What's important is that you've got um one of the last still going end of the pier theatres there. I think that's on the Wellington Pier, which you can just walk up to, still go into today. And they've always got the um, the big posters up outside with who's coming, whether it's the Chuckle Brothers. Previously, we've had Jim Davidson, Jimmy Cricket, and kind of all the usual seaside icons. But also you've got people like Jimmy Carr that are there as well. He's, he was on there last time I looked. So yeah, the, the, also really important uh, buildings. Um, I'm going to mention one more ride, if that's okay, if you don't mind me indulging oh, myself. Please My- feel free. My personal favourite is the tubs in Joyland, not in Pleasure Beach, up the other end. These were built in 1949. They're, they're called a Virginia Reel, that's the style, which is a spinning roller coaster in which you sit in tubs, which kind of 
spin round and zigzag down a track from the top. And it's actually the only remaining example in the entire world of a Virginia reel. It's a miniature version. The original ones mostly were much, much bigger than this, but it's still absolutely unique and has barely really changed since it opened. It was actually, this style was invented by Horace Cole, whose family owned and still owns the park. He actually designed the snails, another ride there, like a little children's ride where you ride in a snail that goes up and down the track. Oh, I remember the snails. And the local industrial link, they were built in his own engineering works in Great Yarmouth, both rides. So I think the listeners have got a feel for our enthusiasm for Yarmouth Beach. So please, please do visit. Um, I mean, I kind of want to go back now and I've been there loads of times. Uh, Before we move on, I want to come back to that roller coaster because it's just so terrifying. Do you know what a head chopper is? The head chopper is the bit where I always duck. Um, I'll, yes, I'll let you explain it, but it's terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. So uh, I believe it's one of the most terrifying roller coasters in the world because of the brakeman and the head chopper. Um, could talk about Pleasure Beach all day, but let's move on. Um, we couldn't get through an episode of Yieldy Guide without mentioning a football ground. What's significant about the football stand in Great Yarmouth? Well, I don't think many people would associate Great Yarmouth with football in instantly. I think the local team <laughs> plays in uh, the Eastern Counties League. I can't remember who sponsors that. It might be Ridgens, possibly. It used to be Juicens back in my day. But that you're talking about kind of ninth, 10th division football here. But it actually, their ground is hugely important because it contains the oldest football stand in the world, which is still in use. It opened in 1892. It seats about 500 and it's grade two listed, has been since 2000. Um, if you look at it, it doesn't really look like a modern football stand. It almost has kind of the appearance of, of a, a railway station, I'd say. It has that kind of brick and wood Victorian railway station appearance to it. But it's still there, still being used. Really, really important part of our national sporting heritage. It's it's actually beautiful. So I would, would recommend having a look on um, Google Images if, if you haven't seen it before. So Yarmouth's got a few, it's got a famous greyhound and horse racing track. But mo- moving away from sports uh, to the world of literature, Yarmouth has got um, two quite significant um literary uh, associations i think the first one to talk about is probably anna sewell anna sewell yeah. who wrote black beauty I, I should explain she wrote black beauty which was the first book ever to be written from the perspective of an animal and to carry mm. an ethical kind of message about animal rights she was born in great yarmouth and although she didn't live there for long um her birthplace is now a museum there and I suppose if you had someone born there who'd written one of the best-selling books ever, I think it's well within the top 20 of best-selling books ever, mm. you would want to celebrate their life. And it's, it's fantastic that they do that. Um, other literary um, connections. In Charles Dickens, David Copperfield visits Great Yarmouth as a child. He describes an enormous storm that hits the town, um, similar to what we mentioned earlier. Robinson Crusoe, the opening of uh, Daniel Defoe's great novel, is, is set off the coast of Yarmouth with this kind of wild imagery of, of savage seas, almost kind of dangerous and, and adventurous at the same time. But also in uh, what I found interesting about um, Charles Dickens's depiction of Great Yarmouth is how, in how much detail he describes the town. It's multi-sensory. He describes the sounds of carts. He describes the smell of fish, the pride local people have in how important and great their town is. It's a really great depiction of 19th century um, Great Yarmouth. That's right. And we will be coming back to the smell of fish in the science and industry section, Definitely. I'm sure, 
Is there anything else we should pick up in culture or um, are we ready to go on to the scores? I'll just mention one more thing, which oh, yeah. is um, a, a, another another potential first here. Great Yarmouth may have had the oldest recorded purpose-built theatre in England. We have to add some asterisks and caveats to this. What we're talking about here is the Game Place House on what is now Priory Plain, which was first mentioned in 1539, which is 38 years before the first known playhouse was even established in London. It's not absolutely certain from the records available to us whether this was definitely a theatre. It could possibly have been just a place where actors and spectators could get refreshments and plays might have taken place outside, which was quite common at the time. And it didn't last all that long because records described as simply decayed by 1594. So we're talking about 55 years later there. But if any new evidence ever comes to light on this, it'd be fantastic to know because it would be a, a really major national first there. It would. Okay, then, so on to the scores. So uh, for new listeners, this is the bit where we um, attempt to sort of score the town for historical significance in the category. And shall I go first? Yeah, please do. Yes. um, So I am going to give Great Yarmouth quite a high score. I'm going to give it a seven. And the reason why is because I think this seaside resort and all the buildings that come with it, including the Pleasure Beach, the Hippodrome. It's so uh, significant in the leisure activities that normal people, working class people, in vast quantities enjoyed. It's brought so much fun to a wide range of people. and It's done on such scale, and critically, there's still so much of it that you can see in Yarmouth. You can still do it, and it has that wonderful blend of nostalgia historic significance and it's there you can you can do it yourself it's it's open so uh, and and along with those literary references which gives it some breadth beyond uh, the resort uh, i i'm going with a seven my feelings on great yarmouth are very very similar i mean we looked slightly earlier about how its start as a resort town was kind of laid on similar foundations as for bath and it did have some urban regeneration in vaguely similar neoclassical themes, which we'll look a bit more at later. But eventually they went in different directions. Bath was always really, at that time, a playground for the wealthy, for the gentry at first and the middle classes. But Great Yarmouth rose to its peak later and was really a resort for the working classes. They gained more time, more spending power. And that was later augmented by the rise of mass transport. And I think what's important about the legacy we're left with today is they're not just what they mean to us today. They're not just part of a present day seaside front, but a really important part, as you mentioned, of British social history. I almost feel like some, perhaps we're a bit too close to it at the moment, but I think lots of these will be seen as utterly iconic buildings by future students of 20th century um, social history. Some of the amazing collection of modern and, uh, modern and Victorian Edwardian entertainment heritage. As for the kind of the rides themselves, yeah, they're not exactly the most exciting of rides for thrill seekers. But for our um, historical analysis, I have to say there's a really there's a real timeless charm about them. And um, when I went, I took my little daughter there. She went on rides with my my dad. There, there's three generations there who've all gone on exactly the same rides, experienced mm-hmm. it exactly the same way. Things that have barely changed, and all getting exactly the same uh, childlike enjoyment out of them. I think there's something that's really important and quite unique about the heritage that's been left there and the way you can actually enjoy it in a in a in a real sense today so 
I think that's the main thing. The other stuff, the literary um, links are a good bonus. The football stand obviously biases me a little bit more. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. I think because this is slightly subjective, but the fact it's got the oldest football stand in the country is going to give it that extra, or the world, I should say, the extra little half mark. So I think, yeah, great score so far. 14 and a half out of 20. Of course. Great Yarmouth. Our second category looks at the influence of Great Yarmouth in national politics and its involvement in war and conflict. Yarmouth isn't really known as the centre of political power, but its strategic location has led to its involvement in plenty of um, maritime history. Well, Yarmouth's naval history, I think, probably goes back to... I, I'm going to pick 1297 as our starting point. When there was a local naval battle with Kent fishermen, basically Kent, certain ports in Kent had joint control of the important herring fair at Great Yarmouth. Um, people in Great Yarmouth did not like that. It was The control was given initially for reasons concerning who actually did the fish in Kent. Boats would go up to the coast of Yarmouth and fish there. And this led to several skirmishes, but a major one in 1297 where roughly 30 ships were lost at sea. Um, there were other skirmishes later, but this seems to have been a particularly brutal element of a general kind of trade of interregional piracy around the country around this time. And really, almost following on since then, there's been this military tradition of Yarmouth being a staging point um, or a production point um, or a supply point for British naval battles which happened near the coast of, of England. Um, ones that I'll pick out are the Third Anglo-Dutch War in 1673, and we're not going to go into the background of that war because it would take far too long. But um, the English army launched an attack, or the English Navy, I should say, launched an attack on Zealand from Great Yarmouth. And then later on, Great Yarmouth became the main supply base for the North Sea Fleet during wars with France, the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. Yarmouth essentially, as the supply base, kept the Navy at sea. And it was also, as well as the supply base, the launch base for the British fleet for various battles in the Napoleonic Wars. The physical infrastructure in Yarmouth was changed as well. It had an army, a barracks, various other permanent naval buildings, many of which were destroyed during World War II, unfortunately. However, the Royal Naval Hospital, which opened in 1811, still survives and it's been converted into flats. There's also another remnant, an 18th century cannon on the South Quay in Yarmouth. And this had a real impact on the town. Um, population increased by about 25% in the 10 years from 1801 to 1811, thanks to all this construction work to support the Navy that happened there. Other battles we can talk about going back further in history, um, to a time when there wasn't really a stand, really standing Navy at all in England. The Battle of Sloes, I think it's pronounced, it's Dutch, I've done my best to pronounce it correctly, where there was a fleet comprising many Yarmouth mariners and ships which defeated the French and Genoese force um, in June 1340 which was an important battle in the Hundred Years War. The reason Yarmouth was so important um, as a state a launching point was because it was the largest port in the country at the time so really ideally located for launching a force eastward um, but also because as we mentioned earlier there's a, a huge shipbuilding industry there and um, the shipbuilding industry helped to provide um, the construction works for ships for a navy when there wasn't a standing navy in the country at the time. So for various reasons, Yarmouth's always been a important location for the English navy. And therefore an association inevitably with Nelson. Absolutely. Well, Lord Nelson was from Norfolk. He visited the town a lot. 
Yeah, it's one of the most famous and best described visits is this kind of glorious acclamation in 1800 when he arrived following a trip across Europe. There were flags, pennants, uh, mass crowds. And Nelson made a speech where he said, I'm a Norfolk man and glory in being so. I was tempted to do that in the accent, but I'm not sure what the Norfolk <laughs> accent would have been like back then. Um, he was made a freeman of Great Yarmouth, so he was clearly very popular there. Yarmouth was important militarily for him as well. It was the staging point for the Battle of Copenhagen. Nelson's fr- yep. fleet set off from there and arrived back there. And his legacy is celebrated in Yarmouth today in the original Nelson's Column. So there's the famous one in London, Trafalgar Square. But the, uh, the Nelson Monument in Yarmouth was built in 1817, 21 years before the one in Trafalgar Square. So if you tell someone you're going to see the original Nelson's column, you need to go to Great Yarmouth to see it. It's, and it's it only eight metres shorter than the, the London one. So it looks pretty similar. It's, yeah. It's also known as the Norfolk Naval Pillar. It's in a bit of an off location, quite far south on the spit and surrounded by industrial buildings, but nevertheless an impressive monument um, and quite surprising to, when you come across it. I gather it opens on occasion so you can climb up the monuments. Absolutely. And there was a, Nelson, a Norfolk Nelson Museum in Great Yarmouth until very recently, but I think it closed within perhaps the, even the last year, which is, which is a shame. But he's also memorialised in several roads named after him as well. There's Nelson Road, Nelson Lane, um, various so, roads like that. So we do have some, um, some buildings to sort of commemorate Yarmouth's significance, the Naval Hospital you've mentioned, um, Nelson's Column. But also the um, aerial bombing of um, Yarmouth in the 20th century has left a significant mark on on the structure of the the town. Yarmouth was quite significant for being the first place to suffer an aerial bombing in the First World War. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Great Yarmouth was actually the first place in the whole of the UK to ever suffer an aerial attack. Um, This wasn't an aeroplane. It was a Zeppelin in 1915, Ah. a Zeppelin ship. Um, This was in St. Peter's Plain in Great Yarmouth, um, in in the centre of the town. You can actually go there now and see a plaque on the wall of the house um, where the the bomb hit. Um, So real kind of significance there. But also even during World War II, Great Yarmouth, as you mentioned, was pretty heavily attacked. And one of the reasons was simply bad luck, bad bad location. Um, The Luftwaffe, Mm. when they were flying back to uh, their base in Germany, Great Yarmouth was often the last significant town, significant trading or military location they would go over. So they'd simply drop their spare bombs there on their way back home. So there was quite a kind of disproportionate amount of damage um, wrought to Great Yarmouth during the Second World War. Mm. And this has affected the the urbanism a little bit, which we'll we'll come on to. Are there any other political or um, military influences we should pick up or, or any other buildings that we haven't discussed already? I think the, the, the last important one I want to mention is concerns the Civil War. And I know we talk about the Civil War in every episode. But we we've, got bit, we've got a bit of a different um, angle to it here. During the Civil War, East Anglia was really the parliamentarian heartland. Um, this was their stronghold. And in Great Yarmouth, um, one of their leaders owned a house there, which is still there, called the Elizabethan House, which has been converted into a museum, which you can visit today. Um, it was owned by a local merchant called John Carter. And the parliamentarian leaders, including Oliver Cromwell, used to meet um, regularly at the Elizabethan House um, to discuss their plans, um, just have general kind of leadership meetings, really. And supposedly it was at this house where in November 1648, 
they made their final decision to execute Charles I. That's pretty significant. That's very significant. One of the most momentous <laughs> decisions ever taken wow. in the history of kind of British warfare or politics was possibly taken in Great Yarmouth. I think we have to be, again, add a bit of a caveat to this. I don't think anyone knows for certain, because I don't think anyone was taking detailed minutes which survived to today. It's just um, supposition that this is where they were meeting at the time. It's likely that the decision would have been taken there. But it's th- th- there's significant basis to, uh, to the supposition. Brilliant. So on to the scores. And I believe it's your turn to go first. Frankly, for a town of a population of 40,000, where you wouldn't begin to think there could be some kind of political or military history here... I think there's a huge amount going on, certainly much more than I would ever have expected before researching this. And also Yarmouth has kind of a different angle, a different approach. It's really too remote in England to have been involved in, been involved in very many land battles, hence why we haven't gone down the usual approach of seeing civil war battles or anything like that. But um, its involvement in naval warfare really can't be understated. And this involvement has led to the construction of permanent buildings, communication systems. Um, there are nearby Roman forts as well, Gary and Onham and uh, Burr Castle Roman forts are nearby. So it shows just how strategic a location it's been for sea defence and warfare for such an important, for such a long time. Um, and the shipbuilding industry as well really feeds into this. But in the days before Henry VIII, when England had no standing navy, in times of hostility, local resources here meant coastal towns could be mobilised to provide boats for the royal forces. So even before it was ever decided that Great Yarmouth would be a military or naval centre, it was still, just by virtue of its local specialisations and industry, providing um, resources for the defence and of, uh, of the country and for military battles. Politically, there's perhaps less to say. But this uh, this angle with the Civil War, the fact that potentially one of the men- most momentous decisions in British political or military history was taken in Great Yarmouth, is really, really significant. Um, I'm going to temper it a bit. It's not quite as high in culture because there's less going on in the uh, political side, but I still think it's positive. I'm going to give it a six. So there's more than I expected, and there's lots of interesting stuff there, and there's artefacts that you can see, such as the Pillar, the Royal Naval Hospital. So, uh, yeah, I'm also going to go with a six. In the third category, science and industry, we look at how our town has contributed to the success of a major industry or scientific achievement. Visitors to Yarmouth today may not know that the town was once a centre of global fisheries for many years, and this has left an indelible mark on Yarmouth's urbanism. Tell us more about the herring industry. Fishing for herring happened off the coast of Great Yarmouth before the town even existed. We talked earlier about how the town, physical location of the town was under sea until about the 9th or 10th century AD. But even as long as ago as the 6th century, fishing was happening off the coast of, of Yarmouth, which makes it one of the oldest fishing centres in the whole of northern Europe. It, it grew to such an extent that it was on its own the main supplier of herring to England in the Middle Ages and hence one of the most productive fishing centres in the whole of Europe. Um, one of the reasons it became so successful was because herring was a, an ideal catch because it could be preserved in salt. So you caught it, you didn't have to eat it straight away, you could just transport it off and sell it at markets and fairs across the country. It did have 
the herring industry did suffer a bit of a crisis in the later Middle Ages, partly due to competition from the Netherlands. But it, it survived and went strong for, for many years after that. In its record year of 1913, you had over 1,000 boats, 1,163 boats involved in the industry, and they caught 1,200 million fish. Goodness. <laughs> It's a lot of fish. Um, you can see why Charles Dickens was uh, so keen to describe the smell. And the industry really began to shrink after the mid-20th century to the point where it just doesn't really exist anymore. But there's still a legacy that's um, there today in the, the Time and Tide Museum, which is the old herring works there, plus the Lydia Eva, which was the last remaining steam drifter from the herring fishing fleet, which is now a floating museum of the herring industry. And you can book trips out to sea on it as well. Um, but before we talk a bit more about what you can see today, another thing I want to bring up is something called the Scots Girls, as they were locally known, who used to, yes, who were kind of this mass migratory um, workforce who'd come every year from northeast Scotland, Shetland, and Lewis, um, women of all ages who kind of follow the fishing trade around the country um, and come down to work on a seasonal basis. You'd have as many as six thousand of these women coming down per year who'd come to gut and salt the fish. And they were really kind of almost a tourist attraction in their own right. People would actually come to Yarmouth and watch them work. They were known as silver darlings sometimes because of all the scales that used to stick to them throughout their, um, mm. their work. And they had this kind of almost um, exotic romantic appeal. They appeared in romantic fiction of the time. There's documentary film of them. There's photographs and artwork. So there's really a tremendous record of their presence in Great Yarmouth. It's because the industry went on into the 20th century, there's still photos and you, you, you can get lots of information on, on this industry that went on for centuries. And it it, it really was thriving. I, th- I think the maximum catch was just on the eve of the First World War. Um, I, I understand that 90% of the catch in um, 1911 was being exported to Germany and Russia, which is explains why the wars had such a devastating effect on the industry. You you can get a real sense of this industry today at the Time and Tide Museum, the award-winning museum. Um, It's got a really excellent exhibit on herring. And the museum has built itself into a curing works. Um, And and as well as leaving us with these um, curing works, it's also left us with uh, other buildings that you can see. There's an ice house, densely built up rows, and uh, very narrow rows uh, are also a, a legacy of the of the constraint of such a large and busy industry getting onto such a small space. And you uh, and you can also see, as you say, the uh, Lydia Eva, which is um, moored usually at South Quay. So this is on the Yare facing side of Yarmouth, the the west facing side. And Lydia Eva's got an interesting history. Um, bought by the Royal Air Force in nineteen. 19- 39 and uh and and as you say it can be visited and it will be starring in a new movie in 2023 uh, the the new willy wonka movie so the the lydia river yes it's been unfortunately uh, i think this is a bit of a shame it's been towed to lime regis for the filming oh but uh an attraction of Great Yarmouth. So obviously the herring industry has declined. Have any other industries come forth to to replace? Uh, what other sort of innovations have we had in Yarmouth? Yarmouth was historically important as an export centre. 
mainly East Anglian agricultural produce. Um, this was yeah. particularly in the 18th century and before. It had a major advantage of geography because it was easily reachable through the broads by water navigation. So hugely important there. Um, we've talked also about the importance of the shipbuilding industry before that in the Middle Ages. Um, since then, uh, I think the energy industry is kind of the, the modern day success mm. story. There's, there's North Sea oil, there's natural gas supplies. There's also the offshore wind and renewable energy, including mm. at Scroby Sands Wind Farm. If you go to um, next to the, one of the piers in Great Yarmouth, there's a Scroby Sands Wind Farm um, visitor centre. It tells you all about this wind farm, which you can see from the coast, which is built on this sand spit um, just off the coast. You can actually book a trip out there as well. You can you can see the wind farm itself, but also all the seals that gather on this uh, this sand spit. Oh. And that area is also pretty notorious for shipwrecks. Um, lots of shipwrecks have occurred on it, so there's probably still some of those down below you. I think we're ready to go on to the optical telegraph system. Oh, the, the optical telegraph, you read my mind. There was an, what, what we're talking about here is an early optical telegraph system which was set up between Great Yarmouth and London in 1808. This was one of three routes for communication between the Admiralty in London and um, important other naval, naval bases. So obviously, with the fleet being based in Great Yarmouth during the Napoleonic Wars, quick, fast communication was important. It was actually closed down at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1814. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit how this works. Um, an optical telegraph system basically means it's controlled by sight. You have various um, communication poles essentially set up at various locations along the route between London and Great Yarmouth. And if someone wants to get a message, they'll put the message on the pole, twist it round so it can be seen, and then the next communication pole can see it. That twists around and the message just gets along, essentially by a long chain. Well, to my knowledge, there's no remnant of that left, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting remnant of its, I suppose, naval and industrial history. So I think now it's time to go on to the scores. I'm, I'm going to give Yarmouth a positive score because I think being a, a, a global centre of any industry is significant, and particularly when there's remains that you can still see. Uh, and we, we've just discussed that... The, the quality of the, the the museums and the mark that the herring industry has left on the on the urbanism. Um, so I think there's a few interesting things there. So I'm going to give it a six. I'm going to temper it down to a five. The reason for that is there's lots that's positive here. It's hugely important to one particular industry and became nationally, maybe to some extent internationally significant because of that, which is similar to what we saw, say, with the biscuits industry in our Reading episode or railways in the Swindon episode. And I think it's also fantastic that, like Swindon, it celebrates its um, industrial heritage. The reason I'm tempering it a bit is because this is science and industry. There's not much to talk about on the science side apart from, I suppose, the optical telegraph system. But it, it wasn't a world first, as interesting no. as it was. And I think you'd have to say perhaps the same about the industrial side as well. Although it's important, there hasn't been kind of a, a world first, the genesis of any industry, which is one of our usual uh, points that we make, that when you come on to places where, which were kind of the genesis, the birthplace of a particular industry or the Industrial Revolution, which we will come on to in other episodes, those are where the really high scores come in. But, but five is the middle of the road for us. It's not a negative score. So... Yeah, five for me and six for you. Urban heritage. In this section, we talk about the architecture, streets and general presentation of the town we visit. 
And this is really the category with the most to see in the town. And and Yarmouth is, is a real treat here. Now, we've already discussed many of the seaside cultural icons. So could we talk a bit about the other buildings in, in Yarmouth and the periods of history that they represent? One of the, the key attractions, I think, of Yarmouth's uh, urban landscape is the fact that it has an architectural heritage of buildings from right across really the entire sweep of British history. Um, it barely has a, a period weakness. It has Roman forts, as we mentioned earlier. It has hugely ex- ex- extensive medieval walls surviving, some of the most extensive surviving medieval town walls in the entire country. I think two thirds of them yeah. still survive today. It has churches uh, from the Middle Ages. It has Tudor, Stuart, Georgian, and important Victorian Edwardian buildings. Um, there are many examples we can give give of those, but I think I want to give that kind of overarching point that there is so much from so many different periods that survives in Great Yarmouth. It's very easy to go to the town and just see the seafront and think, well, that's all it is. But no, you set back from that. You have this old, um, originally medieval town centre, which so much progressive architectural development has taken place. You've got to go over to to the other side of the town to see that. So there's a there's a concentration of interesting buildings around the quays on the on the west side of of the town. So you, you you've got buildings like the Port and Haven Commissioner's Office, the Custom House, um, the Elizabethan House. Are, are there any other any other buildings that are real highlights for you? Um, well, just around there, you've also got the Fisherman's Hospital, which is now. Grade one listed, built in 1702. It's it's now converted into almshouses around a courtyard and really looks pretty much the same as it would have done 300 years ago. So that's definitely worth a look at. Um, specific buildings, St George's Chapel is a real favourite of mine. This is um, an, an old chapel that's now been converted into a theatre right in the centre of the original kind of medieval town of, of, of Great Yarmouth. It's a really great example of English Baroque religious architecture. It's Grade one listed, it's part of a kind of regeneration of the old part of Yarmouth during this period of this great period of urban regeneration rebuilding that happened in the 18th century, really around the same time as many other major urban centres being restored. It was built in 1714. It closed for worship in the 20th century and opened later as a theatre, but was recently renovated with a new pavilion, a cafe and a ticket office. It actually won a regional award from the Royal Institute of British Architects in 2014. But I think for me, the, the reason I love this building so much is how unique looking it is. It's it's really unusual to see the curvaceous nature of English Baroque architecture that you'll see in, say, someone like um, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, but done in this mm. Georgian red brickwork, this kind of un- uniquely Georgian uh, building fabric. It just doesn't look like any other Georgian building that you'll see from around this time. It's much more in that Baroque style of being curvy rather than straight lined and pedimented. So it's a neoclassical design, but a much more unique one than you would tend to see in buildings from, from that era. So I think some other highlights, the Toll House, which dates from the 12th century, I believe. That's right. Absolutely ancient. Uh, one of one of England's oldest surviving municipal buildings and was at some point a, a jail. I don't know if you can visit and get inside that. I think you generally can, but it was closed when I went, unfortunately. And, and then we've got the Greyfriars Cloisters. The Cloisters, they're, they're, that's the old 13th century friary that uh, still has remnants there. Um, so yeah, lots of uh, early medieval buildings there. 
But um, I think we should talk about the town walls as well a bit more. I think we, yep. we mentioned them earlier. Um, these are, as we mentioned, hugely extensive in how much has survived. They actually date from the 13th century as well. Henry III originally gave consent to the walls and the prison at the same time in 1261. But building only actually started in 1280, 1285. They were very long, well over a mile long. 2,280 yards, I think, their longest point. 32 feet high, 10 gates and 16 towers. They actually only covered three sides of the town in the Middle Ages because you had the river on the fourth side, which protected the town. They were strengthened later in 1588 due to threat of Spanish invasion. They were described in 1558 as a flinty ring of 15 towers which sent out thunder whenever a Spaniard dared to come near. So there's clearly some symbolic importance as well as practical military use there. It actually formed a kind of practical tax raising purpose as well. It formed a kind of customs barrier for the town. The walls basically controlled access to the town and meant that any merchants coming in or out would have to pay all their tolls and taxes when entering or leaving. And it hasn't really been used for military purposes since the Civil War. They've decayed quite a lot since then, though even in a decayed state, so much survived that it's still a really, really impressive site today. And one last unique thing about them is just to mention that they're very unusual in which, in as much as contemporary records of their building survive. In the British Library today, you can still access the detailed accounts of the local tax, the Murage tax, which was levied mm. to build it, um, or to build it up further in the 14th century. So impressive, imposing, loads of it survives. These are really quite a unique feature of Great Yarmouth um, today. And I think before we go to the scoring, it's worth describing in a bit more detail the rows. So these are the narrow historic alleyways what's uh, where how did these come about the original rows were this maze of narrow alleyways and now a couple of buildings survive which you can visit but essentially you can still go down these narrow alleyways and, and see what they are were and how the kind of urban buildings of great yarmouth looked and how people lived for for, for many centuries the first surviving mention of them is from 1198. And the buildings themselves came about, many of them came about because of the grand buildings that could be designed by wealthy fishing merchants in the town. Um, Daniel Defoe again described them as magnificent buildings like little palaces. One of the surviving houses today was built in 1720 for John Andrews, who was the greatest herring merchant in Europe. And really what they show is that the economic prosperity of herring fishing was having a really kind of real tangible and impressive impact on the urban fabric of the town. They did suffer lots of damage in the Second World War, it has to be said. So not as much survives today as we would like. And I'd, I'd have to say, having visited them for the first time, I was very slightly underwhelmed. I was thinking there would be a little bit more of the, the buildings around that survived. Essentially, most of the rows themselves are just alleyways. And it gives you a sense of how the town would have been but to nothing like the extent that you would have seen before the damage in the Second World War. To me, the most impressive aspect of that part of the town is more the old grand merchants' houses that still survive to this day. No, I, I agree. I don't think the, set, the setting of the presentation today isn't particularly overwhelming. Should we go on to the scores? I think Great Yarmouth is a real town of surprises. As I said before, you could go to Great Yarmouth for a day out for your entire life, keep going there and completely miss what's in the town centre. And I would have to confess for a long time, I did. It's one of those towns where if you take the time to move back in, to look at the other side of it, look at the old town set some way back from the touristy parts, you'll see a, a real contrast in architectural heritage there. As we said, there's buildings from right across the uh, entire sweep of British history. Um, and you can almost see the kind of the growth of the town 
through time. You can see how it has crept towards the sea as the town has physically grown, the land on which it's, uh, it's built has physically grown. You can see this kind of progression through age. You've got further in, in the west, you've got the Roman fort, you've got the medieval buildings, the Georgian buildings, and then finally the kind of Victorian and 20th century buildings that come out after that as you go more towards the east. So I think what's what's great about Great Yarmouth is not just what's there, but how it tells a kind of a really interesting and idiosyncratic story with the way that its buildings are set out in that particular way. So for me, its its parts are great, but I think it's even greater than the sum of its parts. So for me, I'm going to give it a seven. Now, I agree with all that, but I have one big problem with Yarmouth. And that is that I, I couldn't honestly recommend... The, the, a visit to Yarmouth without first saying and uh, uh, admitting that it is a bit run down. All of those buildings are amazing to see and it's a great time visiting and there's stuff you can do. You can go in the museum's time and tide, Elizabethan house. But but there is a feeling of grottiness in places and partly that is a legacy of many English maritime towns and industrial towns particularly because of the, the the legacy of the bombing, but also the a legacy, a little bit of um, 20th century planning as well. And in the case of Yarmouth, probably a lack of prosperity, particularly at the end of the 20th century or, 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 or when the herring trade collapsed. So you, you do have all these wonderful buildings, but this, they're not necessarily presented um, as well as they could be. Although I think that's an improving situation. We mentioned the Venetian waterways ha- having been restored recently, or the Winter Garden in particular you mentioned. It feels to me like a bit of an unpolished gem, but I'm going to give it a positive score. I'm going to give it 6.5. And now for our final scoring category, it's reality versus expectations. The idea is that we want to give every town recognition for how much it punches above or even below its weight. Um, We know that certain towns or cities, just by virtue of their size, are going to have a real real heft in all categories. But we also want to, to give some kind of recognition to the towns and cities which aren't so big, but have something unique in their own right to offer. And I think... Yarmouth does particularly well in this category. Even my knowledge of Yarmouth, someone have visited many times, as you say, you go to the resort and it's known as a resort. It's known as a bit of a, you know, a rundown seaside resort to a lot of people. But I think when you get there, there's so much more to see. And the fact that it's got these two contrasting faces, you can spend a lot of time there. There's lots to do. So I I think it exceeds my expectations. This is a relatively small town. And I think a lot of people don't know um, so much about these other dimensions of its history and that collection of buildings from all ages that you've mentioned in the last section I, I think there's so much to talk about in Yarmouth so much to do I- I'd give it a positive score here an eight right eight that's a high uh, score very <laughs> impressive I think that's its high score in any category so far but I, th- I think one of the important things here is Going back to the very one of the first things I said in this episode, Great Yarmouth population is forty thousand. It's the third largest town in a county which is not exactly known for large towns. It's probably the smallest place we've reviewed so far, but it hasn't had a weak score in any category. But mm. 
it's really performed strongly, or very solidly in absolutely everything. And it has an enormous strength in its leisure heritage. For me, that's the big takeaway from, from Great Yarmouth. Its leisure heritage is absolutely unique. And what I've enjoyed here is the fact we've been able to talk about the leisure heritage of, of the poor, the working classes, or, or the mass population, however you want to, to call it, and which, which is something that you and I have both shared in and serve our families, something that we have a personal connection with. Moving away from talking about the leisure heritage of Georgian aristocrats, as we did in Bath, which is still important, there's something for me that's a little bit more of a direct connection when talking about Great Yarmouth. And I think our appreciation of this will only grow as we get older and we move further away from kind of this kind of entertainment heritage as we start to lack more of it in the future. But even more than that, there's still so much more behind the surf, beneath the surface of Great Yarmouth. There's, as we've said, such a variety of architecture there, an interesting urban layout to the town as it moves from west to east, a nationally important industry, which is very importantly still celebrated today. There's, there's such a great celebration in its not just through museums, but in the way you can actually enjoy these rides from that were built close to 100 years ago today in Pleasure Beach and uh, Joyland and the fun fairs in Great Yarmouth. So for me, there is something really special and striking here. So it's definitely going to be a positive score from me. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Seven and a half, that's a brilliant score. It is. So <laughs> I, 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 And I do need to re-emphasise this to listeners because I, I, I don't want the... <laughs> I, I think we have to accept, though, as much as... There is so much to see in Yarmouth. When you come out of the station and you cross over into the town, if it's a rainy day, it's not the most attractive of places. It well, looks run down in places, but there is so much once you once you involve yourself in the town. Well, that's because the station is miles away from the town. They actually had, they had a better station or better located station, Yarmouth Beach, um, which the, the remnants are still there today, actually. They're near the football ground on the uh, right next to the coast. Um, but unfortunately, I think that may have been collected to the middle and the Great Northern, which was in the muddle and go nowhere. So wasn't it wasn't particularly yeah, useful, it, unfortunately. But it's it still quite, sits there. It, it, it winded around Norfolk. It's quite a good score overall. I don't know if you've um, been able to add it up. I have. Its um, total score is 66.5 out of a possible total of 100. So just to emphasise on here, as you probably gathered already, five is our average. We don't take seven as an average or anything like that. We go directly... For, we start at five and go up or down. So this is definitely a good score for Yarmouth. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode. Time flies. So much to cover in Great Yarmouth. Thanks for joining us, though, and I hope we've inspired you to visit Yarmouth. As ever, please do get in touch with any thoughts on this episode or any other via the website yeoldieguide.com. Please check out our other episodes. We've been to Coventry, Reading, Swindon, Chester, Bath, and we've got many more to come. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are always welcome too. In our next episode, we'll be leaving the coast and travelling up to West Yorkshire to Wakefield. A very interesting episode. See you then.